Hello and welcome to the MIT Press Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Gondek, and today I'm speaking with John Sharp, the author of Works of Game on the Aesthetics of Games and Art, which is part of the MIT Press's Playful Thinking series. John Sharp is Associate Professor of Games and Learning at Parsons, the New School for Design, and a member of the Game Design Collective, Local Number 12. John Sharp, thanks for taking time to talk to the MIT Press Podcast today. Thanks for having me. Your book, Works of Game, looks at the aesthetic experience of the interaction of games and art. So what are we talking about here? Are these games in the sense that they can be played and their rules? Are they pieces of art that should be more contemplated than participated in? Uh, is it a hybrid of the two? Uh, sort of all of that, actually. Um, I guess what it's probably best to start with why I wrote the book in the first place. Um, so my background is I'm trained as an art historian, I wrote a dissertation on a uh, 15th century painter named Carlo Crivelli that pretty much nobody's ever heard of. Uh, but the whole time I was studying art history, I was always a practicing designer of some sort. And I guess around 2005, I both my scholarly interests and my design practice shifted toward games. And one of the things I noticed, particularly, I guess, starting around 2008 or so, was the idea of games as art was something that was talked about in some of the circles around the making of games and the criticism of games. But one of the things I noticed was there was very fuzzy definitions of what exactly people meant by art. And what I came to realize was often it was more meant uh, well-made games or maybe something to do with the cultural status of games. Uh, so I just started looking into the history of the relationship of games of art, games as art, um, and realized there was a lot of confusion, I guess for lack of a better word, on the part of a lot of game communities about what exactly it meant to create art with a capital A uh, in contemporary times. And on the flip side, there was a lot of misunderstanding of kind of the purpose uh, of games within the art community or what, I guess, maybe better stated the potential of games as an art form. So I set about working on this book. And what I came to realize is really most of the time when a lot of contemporary artists are thinking about games, they're more using them in two ways. One as tool sets, so using a lot of the tools that the game industry might use to make w their work, but instead of trying to make games with goals and you know, shooting and robots and that sort of thing, uh, they're using the tools for many other purposes. Uh, then the other thing a lot of artists tend to do is use games as a sort of cultural trope. You know, games are incredibly popular these days, and so it's kind of like using popular music or film in the art work. So that's kind of in broad strokes what a lot of artists tend to do. And I guess a good example in the book is uh, Julian Oliver, who is an artist that does lots of work and uh, tends to center around technology. And one of his projects involved using a game engine, Quake 3, to basically create still images and videos. 
So in that case, he's using the tool sets of games, but he's doing it in a very traditional way. He's trying to use to use them to make still imagery or video sequences. You know, the gameness wasn't important at all to him. So in this section of game art, where you talk about artists like Julian Oliver, are there people more interested in using the tools and images of games to provide a more direct aesthetic experience rather than commenting on the nature of games or the gaming community? Yeah, no, I think with Julian Oliver, I think you're right. He's using a game engine as any other tool, right? He might have just used a camera or maybe he'd use a piece of... Uh, Software like uh, Adobe After Effects, a very popular tool for making kind of time-based uh, special effects. Um, but he chose a game engine because that was a technology he wanted to explore and play with. And, you know, most people, I imagine, if they're looking at the images in that series by Julian, probably don't necessarily know they were made from a game engine. And, and that's okay. So, yeah, he's not commenting on... The game industry, he's not commenting upon the status of games and culture. He's simply making visual work. Now, on the other hand, um, I also talk about Jody, which is a, a pair of artists that, in some ways, similar to Julian Oliver, they use game engine technologies, but they very much are commenting on the role of technology on the sort of status of screen-based culture. So their work, I think, can be interpreted much more critically, not just of games, but really technology and software uh, writ large. The second section of your book is art games. Are these individuals or collectives trying to develop games as opposed to creating art? Yeah, I think the, uh, the folks making art games tend to come from... Uh, either computer science backgrounds or have worked in the game industry um, in some way, shape, or form. And I think uh, one of the examples I talk about in the book is Jason Rohr, who is a programmer, software developer, who who became interested in games uh, you know, a decade or so ago. And his games are playable. You know, they, there's interactivity, there's goals. The, the game system sort of pushes, resists the player's efforts to achieve those goals. But he's using them not to, you know, tell stories about wizards or zombies. Instead, he's telling stories from his own life. Um, so his games tend to be autobiographical in nature. And maybe a Passage is probably the best known game he made. And it's a meditation on death and life and what we do with our time and the sort of the benefits and the compromises of relationships. And it all takes place in a very narrow little screen of two characters walking around in a maze. So it's a very unexpected game for people who are looking for a traditional play experience. Um, you know, like a sports simulation game or some sort of first-person shooter. So, yeah, these artists are steeped in the medium of games, the craft of games, but they're trying to use games in a different way that's not just about entertainment. 
I was curious about how these pieces are being distributed to their audiences. Are the art pieces seen primarily by gal- in galleries and museums and the games through more traditional gaming retailers? How does that work? So, you know, with the case of art games, the folks who tend to come from the game-making community, they're using the same distribution methods of most any other game. Uh, like in the case of Jonathan Blow's Braid, uh, initially it was available through Microsoft's Xbox Live platform. Now I believe you could get it through Steam, which is another online distribution method. Um, you know, it's available in many, many different forms. Games like Jason Rohr's Passage, that's available for free online. You just can go to his website and download it. Now, the game art folks like Corey Archangel, uh, Jody, Julian Oliver, those are also distributed through the kind of traditional platforms you might expect, through galleries, through dealers. Uh, you might encounter them, museum exhibitions. So they really do tend to stay kind of inside their own communities. The third group you talk about are artist games. Could you talk about this group, particularly in connection to the group known as Blast Theory? Sure. So you know the, the third category I talk about in the book are uh, artist games, which for me are the artists who understand the conventions and the values and the aesthetics of both contemporary art world and that of the games community. So they're making things that I think many people inside the game community would recognize to be games, but that those inside the contemporary art community would also recognize as something from their community. So, you know, a good example is Blast Theory. You know, on the surface, they kind of look like a corporation or a tech, you know, maybe a like advertising events company because of the kinds of work they tend to do. Tends to have a very sophisticated use of cell phone technology and Wi-Fi networks, uh, can be kind of uh, very slickly put together uh, events, but they still very much are concerned with the sort of aesthetics of an artist. You know, they're critical of the technologies at the same time they're using them. They're borrowing from the traditions of experimental theater, of alternate reality games, of all sorts of different fields, and they're bringing them together in a, a very smart, synthetic manner. Uh, the experience of many of Blast Theory's games are located kind of in the real world. So in that respect, they're breaking with some of the conventions of you know the traditional view of art that we must be inside a white gallery space, right, and looking at works hanging on the wall. Their work tends to take you out into the city or the countryside or you know wherever the, the work might be positioned. And the way they stay with you often is through audio that's perhaps playing back on your cell phone. Or maybe you've got a particular device in a, a pair of headphones that you're wearing as you walk around in the space. So it's a it's both innovative, I think, in some ways for the games community, but also it's innovative for contemporary art. You know, I started thinking about all the recent developments in game technology, particularly improvements in virtual reality. Are there some artists working with these new technologies? Oh, definitely. I mean, it's it's you know this this book's you know though it's 
roughly 30,000 words. It's taken me four and a half, five years to write. And it's kind of interesting. Over that time, I've seen some of the phenomenon I talk about in the book kind of turning into history. You know, in particular, uh, the art games movement, uh, the examples I used being Jason Rohr and Jonathan Blow and Brenda Romero. Um, there's not as much of an emphasis on that sort of approach to games as art in a sort of 19th century sense as being about the human condition. So, you know, I've seen a lot of things change. For me, one of the more exciting things I've noticed is uh, the rise of virtual reality and things like the Oculus Rift. You know, at first they were being used in not that exciting ways. It's, you know, basically taking the tropes of a first person shooter and instead of looking at screen, now you're wearing this headset, right? But increasingly we're seeing artists and game makers coming from different places picking up these technologies and starting to develop all sorts of new kinds of experiences around them. And I think as the barrier to entry lowers for the complexity of creating with and for these new technologies continues. Uh, we're going to see more and more artists embracing things like virtual reality or using game engines to make interactive experiences that aren't what we might expect. You know, in the book, I open with the example of uh, Bill Viola and uh, Tracy Fullerton, their team at USC's uh, The Night Journey which was, you know, Bill Viola is an incredibly well-known video artist, right? And he became interested in exploring games as a medium to investigate some of his concerns around spirituality and that sort of thing. And it's, you know, it's a game that it's exhibit around the world. But since that project, Tracy Fullerton and her lab have started on a new project called Walden, which is taking... Thoreau's famous book about his experiences at Walden Pond and turning that into an immersive, playable experience. That is a game in the sense of having goals and interactivity and that sort of thing. But it's taking games in a direction that I don't think anyone would have imagined possible 10 years ago. And seeing projects like that happening is incredibly exciting for me. John Sharp, the author of Works of Game on the Aesthetics of Games and Art, part of MIT Press's Playful Thinking series. Thanks for being on the MIT Press podcast today. Thanks for having me. For more information about this and other titles, please visit our website at mitpress.mit.edu. Don't forget, you can find the MIT Press on Facebook, www.facebook.com slash MIT Press. And you can also follow us on Twitter, where we are at MIT Press. Thanks for listening to this episode of the MIT Press podcast. Copyright 2015, the MIT Press, all rights reserved.